0: invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther. You can turn to Esther chapter 4. We have the uh, unenviable privilege of trying to cover the entire book of Esther in about 30 minutes. So buckle up. Uh, but I'm going to have you start in Esther chapter 4, but I'm going to walk you through Esther's chapters 1 through 3 very, very quickly. And so we pick up in the book of Esther with a character. You see, Esther is a phenomenal story. It has characters and plots and twists. And if you have not been reading Esther with us this week through the journal, I highly encourage you to take the time this week to read the book of Esther. The story is much better than I'm going to do it justice today. Okay, so read it for yourself. But we come to the first character in the first verse of Esther, and it's King Ahasuerus. And you might have him in your translation as King Xerxes. It's the same person, it just depends on what dialect they, dep- they determined to take his name from. But he was the ruler of a nation called Persia. Persia had conquered Babylon, and now was the greatest country or the greatest nation in the world. It stretched from Ethiopia. All the way to India, it was 127 provinces, and King Ahasuerus was the biggest, baddest dude on the planet. And when you're that, you can do whatever you want. And so he threw a party that lasted 180 days. And when he was done with his party that lasted 180 days, he gave his people in his capital of Susa a present, which was another party that lasted seven days. And during this party, he decided he wanted his wife, Queen Vashti, to come be paraded in front so that all may see her beauty. And she said no. Now, a lot of us are used to being told no. It's not that big of a deal to us. But let's just say you don't say no to the most powerful person in the world, especially at a time like that. And so he did what he had the right to do, and he deposed her as queen. And so as you turn to Esther chapter 2, they come to find a new queen and they hold a beauty contest. And even though the name of God is not mentioned in the book of Esther, you can see the hand of God working his way through as it says that she was caused to find favor in the eyes of the king and of the king's attendants. And she won the contest and she became Queen Esther, Queen of all Persia. Now, we know something in the text that the king does not. We know that she is a Jewish girl, that she was raised by her cousin Mordecai, and that Mordecai had instructed her, do not let anyone know that you're Jewish. It would go poorly for you, so keep that in. And it says that she obeyed Mordecai because she had learned how to obey him growing up. We find out one little, one other little tidbit about Mordecai that he saved the life of the king from a plot on his life. He found it out, he turned it in, the people were executed, and it was recorded in the annals of the kings of Persia. We get to chapter 3. In chapter 3, we get a new character. His name is Haman. I've been told that when you go into a Jewish synagogue and the name Haman is mentioned, that you hear hissing and booing. And you hear, you hear hissing and booing because he is such a reviled character and their history, and you'll hear why in just a minute. And Haman was an up-and-comer in Ahasuerus' court. He was off promoted and in fact, he was promoted so highly that Ahasuerus made a rule that when you saw Haman coming down the street, you were to bow before him. And everyone did. People bowed before him, except for one, Mordecai. Mordecai refused to bow before this man. We're not told why in the text. But we are told that people pleaded with him, please bow before him, save yourself, save other people. But he refused. And so Mordecai decided to get even. But he did so in a very interesting way. He decided that he was not going to lay a hand on Mordecai, that he was just going to annihilate Mordecai and his entire people. It's the reason why he was hissed and booed. So he went to his friend, King Ahijah Harris and said, you have a problem in your provinces. You have this Jewish people. They don't do the same things we do. They don't worship the same things we worship. They're going to cause you ill. And so you need to make a law that on a certain day, we're going to be able to wipe them out. Men, women, and children. We're going to take their stuff, and we're going to cause them to cease to exist. King Ahasuerus thought this sounded like a good idea, so he gave Haman his signet ring. And they made it into a law. Now the thing about Medo-Persian law was that once it was signed and once it was sealed, it could not be appealed. It could not be repealed. There was nothing that they could do. It was in stone. It was going to happen. So we pick up in chapter 4 in verse 1 to the response of the people. says when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province whenever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning amongst the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. They're devastated. They understand that they have a law that is meant to wipe them out, that they do not have protection, that they're not illegally allowed to fight back, that really they have no hope. And so they're mourning. Esther sees her cousin mourning. She says, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathok went out to Mordecai on the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. You see, I believe Mordecai was a great man of faith and I think I can prove that here in a few verses. But Mordecai believed that there was hope. And so he said, you know what? I need to, le- I need to let Queen Esther know what's going on. I'm going to send her these decrees. I'm going to send her the paperwork so she could see with her own eyes what's happening, but I'm going to command her. I'm going to command her to go before the king, her husband, and plead on our behalf for our lives. Because if there's anyone who could soften the heart of a king, it's his wife. For Mordecai, this was a great plan. So he had them go back and tell Esther. Verse 9. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So Esther's replying to Mordecai, and she's saying, Mordecai, I hear what you're saying, and it sounds on the surface like a great plan. I could talk to the king. I can work this out. I could plead for our lives, but there's a problem. You see, I'm not allowed to go before the king. I am not allowed to just show up. If you just show up before the king, he has the right legally to just kill me. There's no trial, there's no jail, I'm just dead. And our plan is over before it starts. And before you say, but you're his wife and you can just get in there, it's going to be simple. Know this, he hasn't needed me, he hasn't wanted me, he hasn't chosen to see me for 30 days. Things aren't really going really well right now. I have no idea what will happen when I go there. This isn't a great plan. We need a better one. You see, Esther was confronted with a sacrificial call. And her natural initial reaction to a sacrificial call was fear. Normally we come to church and we want to bash fear. But I don't want to bash fear at all today. You see, I believe that this is somewhat a a good natural reaction. God's given us a brain. He's given us the ability to reason. We look through what's going on and she says, This is not a great plan. I'm going to die and I might not even get the chance to plead for my life. Let's think of something that will be more effective. The other reason I don't want to bash fear today is because there's another instance of a sacrificial call where fear was involved. You see, a few hundred years later, there's going to be a man in a garden, and he's going to be praying, and he's going to look up to his father and say, Father, take this cup away from me. I know what is before me, and it's going to be awful. Is there any other way and so she relays that message to mordecai verse 12 they told mordecai what esther had said that mordecai told them to reply to esther do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other jews for if you keep silent at this time relief and deliverance will rise from the jews for another place but you and your father's house will perish Mordecai responds back to Esther. He says, don't you know that your secret will come out? If you are silent, if you don't do anything, someone's going to want your spot, and they're going to have a legal right to go and kill you. By what you're doing, you are not going to save yourself. And this is where I believe Mordecai is a man of faith. Because he says, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. You see, I believe Mordecai knew the Old Testament. I believe he knew that when the people were rebelling, that they were going to be sent into exile. They were going to be cast away from the promised land. But the plan for God after exile was not to annihilate them out there. The plan was to bring, scoop them up and to bring them home, to return them to the land. He said, God's plan for us is not annihilation. His plan for us is deliverance. I don't know where it's going to come from. But Esther, I believe it's to you. This next phrase, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What if God has aligned all these details that we could look to be circumstance or happenstance or just random acts of chance. But God has set these in order that a queen would disobey and that there would be a contest and she would be scooped up and made to participate. And God would cause this Jewish girl out of all the girls in the kingdom to be the one chosen to be queen of the king so that when God needed someone to stand in the gap for his people, she was right there. What if you have been put here for such a time as this? And those words, I believe, resonated within the soul of Esther. Verse 15, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. You see, while her initial natural reaction to a sacrificial call was fear, her final decision to a sacrificial call was obedience. Esther looked at the risk that was involved, and she looked at the risk that man could do to her, how her husband could have her killed, and she looked at the risk on the other side about being disobedient to a call of God in your life. And she said, I will go take my chances with a king. See, a few hundred years later in a garden, when that man was praying, take this cup from me, he followed it with, but not my will, but your will be done. You see, when there is a sacrificial call in the life of a believer, the next step ought to be one of obedience. And Esther made that next step. And so when we get to chapter 5... We have Esther going before the king. Now, I have no idea what this scene actually looked like. I don't know if she went in and her knees were knocking together. I don't know if the spirit of God came and gave her great confidence that she went in with her head held high and stood before the king, but I know she went. And the scripture says that the king immediately held out his golden scepter to her and she touched the tip of it and he said, Esther, my darling, what is it that you want even up to half of my kingdom? I don't know about you, but I might have taken that kingdom. That sounds pretty good. Esther asked him to come to dinner. She said, I have prepared a feast. Will you and Haman join me for dinner? And so they came, and they ate, and they drank, and they had a great time. But I'm sure the king's brain is just going. You risked your life walking in here to ask me to come to dinner? Esther, what what is it that you want? I'll give it to you, even up to half of my kingdom. Thank you. I want you to come to dinner tomorrow night. If you don't believe me, it's really in there. It's a fantastic story. But they come to dinner the next night. And Haman's chest is all puffed out. He can't believe that he has been invited, just him and the king, to dine with the queen. He thinks this is another example of his coronation to be one of the greatest in the kingdom. And they eat and they drink. And he says, come on, Esther, there's got to be something. Tell me, what is it that you want? I'll give it to you, even up to half of my kingdom. She says, I would like my life. And not only do I want my life, I want the life of all of my people who have been decreed to be destroyed. The king just gets all huff and puff and can't believe that this is going on and says, who who caused this to happen? And she points to Haman and said, this man is the destroyer of Israel. And so the king gets up and he's all mad and he goes out because he's just burning with anger. You think about it. There's not really much he thinks he can do. It's a law that's been set in stone. He doesn't know what the next step is, and he's out blowing steam. And he returns back to the scene, and he finds Haman fallen over on the bed of Esther over her. And let's just say it didn't go very well for Haman. They put a bag over his head, they let him out, and they impaled him on a pole that they had prepared for Mordecai. But the Jews weren't saved yet. But that obedient call that Esther answered, or that sacrificial call that Esther answered with obedience, led them to be able to take these next steps. And they made another law. And this law said that the Jewish people would be able to fight back, that they'd be able to stand up against their enemies. And stand up they did. They conquered them. They killed the sons of Haman. And when all of the war and the fighting was done, they had a feast in a day of rest that became a holiday known as Purim. You see, God had stepped up and he had used a sacrificial call to Esther who answered it with obedience to bring salvation and deliverance for his people. You see, a few hundred years later, there was a sacrificial call to a man in a garden and he got over his natural initial reaction of fear. He answered with obedience But his was an actual death sentence. He went and he took a cross. And he died on that cross for your sin and for my sin. And he had the weight of all of the sin of the world on his shoulders because of obedience. But he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave, and he gathered his disciples, and he began to talk to them. And I believe that this is where we come in. You see, God has a sacrificial call for us. And that sacrificial call, I believe, is found in the book of Matthew. You see, in Matthew 22, right before Jesus goes in the garden, he looks. he's talking with a group of Pharisees, and they're arguing with him and trying to get him to trip him up. And they said, how do you sum up the law and the prophets? How can you sum it down to the shortest sentences possible? And they're trying to get him to stumble. And he said, man, that's easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Doing this wraps up all the law and the prophets. In other words, if you do those things, you will have obeyed the entire Old Testament. Really the entire scripture. Love God, love others. It's simple. But it's not a whim. It's a command. It is our call as children of God to love him and to love others. But he wasn't done. You see, he went to that garden... He answered in obedience, he took the cross, he paid for our sin, he rose from new life, and before he went back, he gathered his disciples, and he said something to them. He said, all authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. Now when we talk about the Great Commission, we tend to overlook that verse sometimes, but I want to let you know why it is so important. Think about who Jesus is for these disciples, He had plucked them out of nowhere. He had gathered them as a group and he began to teach them. And for three years he told them about the coming kingdom of God. They believed he was coming and bringing a kingdom with him. And then they took their savior, their messiah, and they killed him. And it says they scattered like sheep. They were scared for their lives. But then they gathered together and the resurrected Christ appeared Do you think he had their attention? Do you think they were ready to follow him in whatever was asked to them? And he said, all authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, into all the world. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey all that I have commanded with you. And guess what? I'm going to be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Why is that so important? Because he gave them a sacrificial call. And he realized that there were going to be times where they were going to have that initial reaction of fear because as the world hated Jesus, the world was going to hate the disciples. And he said, I want you to know that in those times where you have fear and making a disciple or baptizing someone or teaching someone is going to be hard, I want you to know that I am going to be with you. And so as the disciples had to make choices in their ministry, they knew their call and they knew that Jesus was with them and they turned the world upside down. They were bold with their faith. They were bold with the gospel, and it went out and exploded, and the church hasn't stopped, and it's never going to stop. And you have been given that same call. So what I want to tell you this morning is that you need to know and choose your risk. You see, there is risk involved for all of us. When we look at the call to serve and the call to sacrifice ourselves for the gospel, which is not just something we talk about in church, but are the very words of Jesus, it's going to cost us something. Jesus prepared his disciples before the cross for this. He said, take up your cross and follow me. Unless a man hates his mother and his father and his brother and his sister, he has no part in what I'm doing. Unless you sell all you have and give it to the poor, then you can come and follow me. He told them to count the cost and we have to count the cost. I know you need me to go down in that third grade mountain group. I know there's some boys down there who, who need a leader. But Brian, if you put me in that group, I'm going to poke my eyes out. I just can't handle being with children anymore. Man, I know, David, I know you need someone to lead a small group. But I've been in a small group. And when the leaders asks the question, do you know what everyone else just does? They just look at him. <laughs> I can't do that. You know what? I, I, heard the, I heard the plea for community sponsorship, but I just don't know if I'm ready to part with, with my money yet. Man, I know I have this neighbor who needs to hear about Jesus, but I just don't want him to think I'm one of those Jesus freaks. I don't want him to think that I'm one of those people that are one of those crazed religious fanatics. I'm just going to hang out for a while. All of those are risks and they're fears. And I want to tell you that they're very real. But I also want to tell you that today, that the risk of the fears and the risk of everything that someone can do to you in this world pale in comparison to the risk of disobedience. The risk of disobedience to the God who has called you to sacrifice your life for the gospel That's not something I want to mess with. Because what if? What if we have been placed where we are for such a time as this? You see, what I want to tell you this morning is that the joy of obedience to the call of God far surpasses the weight of fear. I've been there. I know those hesitations that come up where you have that that occasion to slip in the gospel story to someone and that thing that goes... And you can't get the words out. I know you look at the gifts in your life sometimes you go, man, God has gifted me to work with kids. I'm a teacher. But I, I can't come and do this on a weekend. I understand the fear and all the things that grip us. But I also want to tell you about the joy. You see, I have conversations with people before they serve and before they share their baptism story and before they go speak somewhere. And they say, Brian, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. I've got, these, I've got this feeling in my gut. And I go, it, it, it's hard to get words out. Like, yeah, it's really hard to get the words out. And I go, man, I understand what you're going through. And it's bad. Let me tell you, it's bad. But the second you stand up in obedience, the second you go and sit in that group in obedience the second that you go and lead in a small group environment in obedience, the joy that you will feel will make everything else dissipate. I talk to those people after they've served or after they get up and speak, I say, how do you feel now? I feel great. Why do you feel great? Because the joy of the Lord is our very strength. He has given us a sacrificial call. We have to deal with a natural initial reaction of fear. But when we step up in obedience, the joy of the Lord will overwhelm us. So my question for you is this. What if? What if God has set you up for such a time as this? We've heard stories today from Pastor Nixon of how God called him back to Smoky Mountain in the Philippines. One of my best friends in the world had a, got a call on his life from God to go to China. And now the Catlin family is moving here in a few weeks to go to China. He tells me he wakes up in the middle of the night sometimes and goes, Why am I doing this? But he reminds himself that God has called him. I'm not telling you that you've been called to go to China. I'm also not telling you that you haven't. But God has placed a call on your life to make disciples. And it's up to you guys to find where that environment is. There are environments with children, with adults, in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces. But what if God has given you the family that he's given you? He's given you the position and the career that he's given you. What if he has brought you to this moment so that you would understand that I am supposed to make a disciple of Jesus Christ? I am called to be a fisher of men you know the reality is I don't have to ask what if that's the call you have been called to lay down your life and sacrifice for the gospel of Jesus Christ my question for you this morning is will you answer it let's pray Heavenly Father I'm so thankful for the story of Esther and how it not only tells us how you delivered your people back then but it tells us how you are still at work in us now father you have placed a call on all of our lives all authority under heaven and earth was given to your son and your son told his disciples and he is telling us today that we are to go and make disciples we're to baptize them in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit and we're to teach them to obey all that has been commanded us Father, you are with us always. Help us overcome those things in our life that would cause us to disobey. Father, if it's fear of money or fear of time or fear of pride, whatever those things are, may we see it in the light of eternity. Father, it is my prayer this morning that you would mess with the souls of the men and the women in this room until they find their rest in you and in service to your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.